Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're focusing on the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament, a book that perhaps has got a reputation for not being for the faint-hearted. Uh, you know, it can be tough going, apparently. Um, but, uh, Mike, in, in a sentence, you know, what is the book of Leviticus all about? Well, you're right. It is a bit tough going, this one. And I certainly wouldn't recommend to anyone that this is where they started reading the Bible. Leviticus, the title comes from the word Levites, and the Levites were the assistant to the priests in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So this really is a book at its heart about instructions for the priests, on the one hand, but also how to live as God's people. So it consists of, what, 27 chapters. Just take us up above a bird's eye view. What are we going to be hearing about? Well, the first 16 chapters are really all about priests. And then the second half of the book is all about purity. So if you keep those two words in mind, those are sort of good benchmarks. So we're going to hear a lot about the priests and what they had to do, their work, details about sacrifices that they offered on behalf of the people. Second part is about purity. So that's much more to do with the people themselves, how they are to live to reflect this new relationship that they have with the God that they have encountered in the previous book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. You remember in that book, we saw how as they came out of Egypt and were taken to Mount Sinai, their God made them his people in Exodus chapter 19, then gave them his laws to live by. He gave them a tabernacle, a place where they would be able to meet with him, but also offer sacrifices when relationships broke down between them. Now, this book is really a follow-on. It's unpacking that. So what do you mean by sacrifices and offerings and what do you mean about living differently now that we are your people so it's all happening still in the desert at a similar time to the end of exodus and there's a lot more detail sacrifices and offerings you mentioned I mean, what are the differences sacrifices essentially involved the offering up of an animal an animal's life Blood had to be shed. Leviticus makes clear that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Sin is serious. It leads to serious consequences. And each time a sacrifice was offered, their blood was shed. It brought home to you how serious sin was. An offering, in broad terms, was something that you offered to God as an expression of your gratitude or your thankfulness. So in broad terms, there's a little bit of overlap But in broad terms, the sacrifice dealt with sin and the offering dealt with your gratitude and your response to God. And that might be the offering of grain or something like that. Uh, How did those um, sacrifices compare perhaps to the peoples that were around them out of interest? Because, I mean, it sounds a bit bloodthirsty, all this giving up of animals. Well, one of the big differences is, first of all, that it was really clear in the Bible that the only sacrifices that could be offered would be animal sacrifices. Now, in a culture, in a world where that wasn't always the case, that was really important. So God's very clear about this. Your sacrifice 
can only be a substitute for you. It ought to be your life that's given for your sin, but God says, I'll take a substitute instead, an animal sacrifice in its place. But it could never be a human being. There would be, in fact, later in the story, some of Israel's kings who would offer human sacrifices, like the wicked king Manasseh, but the prophets spoke and God spoke so clearly against them. So that would be the big difference. It would be an animal it would never, ever be a human life or a human being. And, and when you say these sacrifices had to be offered up, I mean, for what reason? What, 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 what was causing this to be necessary? It was essentially to do with the breakdown of relationships. So we've seen previously in the book of Exodus that God took Israel to be his own people, to establish a relationship with them. But what happens when that relationship breaks down? It needs a mechanism for both dealing with the sin and re-establishing the relationship, the friendship. And sacrifice is the God-appointed way of ensuring that that relationship could continue. So it's more than just needing to say sorry. Yes, it's much more. Uh, I mean, I think even today, you know, we're probably all aware of people who say sorry, but it's really just a word. Even worse is the very popular these days, sorry if I have done something to upset you, which is not even a sorry, is it? This is something profound. This is God's means of you facing up to how serious sin is, to the destructive nature of sin, to what sin does to you as a person, to what it does to those around you, to what it does to your community. So the whole sacrificial system highlights in very, very graphic ways the seriousness of sin. So Leviticus starts to unpack some of the detail and explain the reason for these different sacrifices. Yes. And in fact, do you know what? The honest truth is it would be really easy to get bogged down in the first seven chapters as you come here. And you really do have to steel yourself to get through this because there is incredible micro detail about what the priest and the offerer is to do for each different type of sacrifice, depending what the sacrifice was for. Now, That micro detail was all important. This was a way of God saying, look, sin is serious. It offends me as a holy God. But frankly, there's not a thing that you can do about it. Not one of you. So I'll make provision for you to be able to deal with your sin. But so you don't take it lightly, this is the detail with which I want you to offer these sacrifices. So some would involve a certain thing being done. Others had bits of the innards washed out and then offered. Some had parts of the animal burnt on the altar. There's a lot of micro detail in these first seven chapters. And to be honest, if you're coming at Leviticus for the very first time, like a quick skim read, I probably shouldn't be saying that really, but I think it's realistic, is perhaps the way to get through these, but there are some things that really stand out. And one of the things that stands out to me most actually comes in the, well, it's summed up in the very first sacrifice of the book. Because I've found over the years that if you say to the average Christian, 
So who offered the sacrifices in the Old Testament? The answer is always going to come, the priests. Mm -hmm. And my answer is always no, which shocks them. (laughs) So let me just take a moment to look at Leviticus chapter 1 with you. And I just want to read part of it and, and then draw something out. So the Lord calls to Moses, speaks to him from the tent of meeting and says, OK, I'm going to give the instructions. So here's the first one for what was called a burnt offering, one particular type of offering. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he, that is the sinner, is to offer a, a male animal without defect. Why a male? Nothing sexist here, but males were seen as the most precious, expensive part of the livestock because of the the breeding potential. So in other words, dealing with sin is costly. Mm -hmm. Of course, later on in the story, we'll see how costly it costs God the death of his own son. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Who's the he? Well, the sinner so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He, who, the sinner, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He, the sinner, is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so it goes on in micro detail. So notice there, Who was to kill the animal? You were. Mm. You, the sinner. Now, actually, it would be the man, the head of the family, very family-minded still in those days. But you would have to kill the animal yourself. Now, why on earth would you do that? I think this was God's way of bringing home to you. You do see how serious sin is, don't you? Look, something's had to die. For your sin. It ought to be you, because your sins really cut you off from it. It ought to be you. But in my graciousness, I've let you lay your hands on its head. That was a symbolic way of saying, oh, God, I know it's me. But God, please, I'm putting my hands on the head of this animal, this offering, this bull, this sheep, this goat, whatever it might be. And I'm acknowledging my sin, but asking that you would take this substitute that you have appointed in my place. You slit the throat. Then the priest came with his bowl, collected the blood, took it to the altar, sometimes sprinkled it on the altar, sometimes poured it out at the base of the altar. But I think this whole thing was set up to bring home a number of things. One, sin serious. One of the constant themes through Leviticus is that God is holy. He's different. He's set apart from us. You need to go between The priest then had to carry the blood and perform the rituals at the altar. You couldn't barge into God's presence. And again, it brings home that we need a substitute between us and God. And and that's not a Mike Beaumont or a pastor or a priest. There's only one substitute the New Testament tells us, one go-between. And that is Jesus, who will fulfill this himself with his own sacrifice. So there were obviously principles behind the procedures. What if things went wrong? Well, the truth is there is at least one example here of where, as you put it, something goes wrong. And there's a story where 
Aaron and his sons and his descendants over thereafter, having been set aside by, set apart by God. Aaron? So they're all Levites, but Aaron and his family descendants would be the priests. The Levites from the rest of the family would be the assistants to the priests. So Aaron and his sons have been set apart to be the priests. But in chapter 10, there's an example of it going wrong. Aaron has two sons called Nadab and Abihu, who clearly think, well, you know, we're our father's sons. We've been appointed to be priests. Why all this faff? Which is, I think, how many of us come to Leviticus and think, oh, my goodness. And they were clearly feeling the same. Why do we have to do it like that? Why can't we do it our way? And in chapter 10, they offer what uh, the Bible calls unlawful offerings, unlawful fire. They, they are offering a sacrifice of their own choosing. It's suddenly become a religion of their own creation at this point because they didn't want to do it God's way. And actually it all goes wrong because out of the offering up of their own fire to God, actually fire from God ends up coming and sadly consuming them. Now that's a pretty drastic step but remember this is right at the start of the priesthood and it's as if God is saying guys you've got to get this right from the beginning if you're going to have your sin dealt with and if you're going to have relationship with me re-established when it goes wrong then you really are going to have to do this my way and not the way that you think might be best or that you think might be good enough, or it will be okay, or I think this is just as good, hence the really precise details. And when those details aren't, well, just aren't not followed, but are actually gone against by Nadab and Abihu, tragedy falls upon that family, a very serious lesson to bring home again this issue that God is a holy God, a theme that keeps coming out throughout this book. There's also a reference to the Day of Atonement. What's that? The Day of Atonement is probably, if you like, the high point of the book of Leviticus. Chapter 16, you can find that. And the Day of Atonement was a day when God established certain rituals that would cover all the sins that hadn't been confessed through the year maybe people had missed or forgotten, that would even cover the priests themselves because the priests themselves had to be pure, that would cover even the tabernacle and the altar if anything had gone wrong there. So this was like a, a rounded-up day where anything that had got missed would be covered by this most solemn sacrifice a high point of Israel's year. It was called a day of solemn assembly. It was, so it was a day of fasting and of seriously seeking God as the rituals of the day of atonement were fulfilled. Again, a lot of detail here about how the priest has to wash and prepare himself and change into certain robes. But then it focusing around two elements of sacrifice that will again, becomes significant later in the story. Here, there were two goats involved. One of them, the priest laid his hands on its head, again, this symbol of identification. 
and confessed Israel's sins over this goat, and it was led out into the wilderness, taken away, so that it would never be seen again, just lost there in the desert. Here's a picture of what God wants to do with our sin, to take it away so that it is never seen again. The second goat, with a particular ritual, is sacrificed and its blood offered up to God to atone, to deal with the sin, to pay for the sin that hadn't been confessed. So it's like there's two elements here. Sin needs dealing with and taking away so that it's never seen again. But sin also needs to be dealt with so that the block that that sin has brought between people and God can be removed. And that's what the animal sacrifice did. So they're like two heads of a coin, the the heads and tails. One involved confessing and taking away. The other involved confessing and a sacrifice to blot out the sin. So taking away, blotting out. Both those will be pictures that are used of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross many years after this story. The the word scapegoat comes to mind. That's exactly what that first goat was called. It was actually called the scapegoat. And it was the scapegoat for Israel's sin. We use that term today, don't we? Sometimes perhaps a little disparaging, or we made him the scapegoat for what went wrong. But what it meant was he or she was the person who carried the can. And here's this goat that carries the can symbolically. Now, by the time we come to the New Testament, we'll see that actually none of these sacrifices in themselves could deal with sin. Actually, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament likens them to shadows. Now, the thing about a shadow is it has no substance in itself. But what it does is you see the shadow, it makes you realise there's a reality somewhere that's casting that shadow. And that's a picture that's used in Hebrews saying, you know, all of these were like shadows getting you to look forward. Now, we look back to Jesus. They had to look forward to one who had not yet come. But all of them point to what Jesus, the son of God, would do one day. Be the scapegoat for us. Carry our sin and carry it away. But also be the sacrifice to atone, to pay the price of our sin. Because the wages of sin is death, the Bible says and to pay for that on our behalf. So this Day of Atonement, very important, because it covered all the sins you might have forgotten to confess, or that it slipped by somehow or other. And as it has a date in the calendar, as it were, you know, we're used to birthdays and anniversaries, within the context of these people, there would have been significant days, would there, and years even. Yes, so um, this Day of Atonement became one of the highlights of the Israelite year, like some of the other festivals, like Passover we spoke about when we were looking at the book of Exodus, still celebrate it to this day. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it's called today, still celebrated to this day by Jewish people. And many of these, of course, become subsumed into Christian festivals like Passover and the Easter event. So, yes, these will be remembered again and again, written into Israel's calendar and will be celebrated. And in this case, celebrated solemnly 
to remember this underlying theme. Again, let me stress this. One of the themes that comes out in Leviticus again and again is this repeated phrase, be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And probably no day underlines that like the Day of Atonement, when even sins you might have missed or not confessed need dealing with, so the relationship between you and God is not spoilt in any way. What other sort of important days were there in the calendar and in the years as they were travelling towards the Promised Land? Well, Passover and Day of Atonement would be particular ones, but they had others like the Festival of Trumpets, and uh, a lot of them actually were associated with harvest. So the Feast of Weeks and things like this. So there were certain ones scattered through the Israelite festival, many of them to do with harvest, to give thanks to God for what he provided, many of them to do with their history, like Passover being a key one, some like this one, just being the reminder that God's a holy God and that they need to be a holy people. Which leads into the second part of Leviticus, where that holiness starts to get expressed in laws for the people, whereas the first part focused very much on what the priests needed to do for the people. And in this second part of Leviticus, there's a reference to the year of Jubilee. What's that? Yes. You know, one of the things I love about this second part of the book is that it is it's very socially minded in many ways. There are lots of things that show God's care and compassion and how that has to be expressed in a whole variety of the way that you live has to reflect that you're my people, God was saying, in the culture of that time. And a lot of them were designed to, to protect the poor. The Old Testament has a huge amount to say about caring for the poor. And the the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee that you just referred to were two of the occasions designed to reflect that. The Sabbath year meant that Sabbath is every seven years. So every seventh year, the land had to be left fallow. You couldn't grow crops on it. Now, we know that that's actually very good for land these days. And obviously, this is a law given for when they would move into the promised land, not living in the desert. So every seventh year, the land had to be left fallow for the ground to be reconstituted. Again, a really good practice. But it was interesting because what they had to do that year was to trust God that there would have been enough both the previous year and enough that would grow randomly by itself. They had to trust that God would provide. This is God's way of saying, do you guys really trust me or is it all about your effort and your work and what you do? Well, listen, every seventh year, let's see. And there were laws like laws of gleaning, which meant the edges of the, the fields were to be left for the poor and so on. So great compassion for the poor there too. The year of Jubilee came every 50th year. It was every seven times seven <laughs> sabbaticals. Now, this, this festival, this law would definitely shake modern economies because it's like God is realising that, you know what Jesus once said, the poor you'll always have with you. 
He didn't mean that as a curse, though they'll always be poor and don't care for them. He was stating reality. There's, there is always poor among you. And the book of Leviticus recognises that. So what might happen sometimes is when Israel went into the land, every single clan and every single family was given a portion of land from which they could grow their crops and live on. But, you know, when people got poor, sometimes perhaps they had a bad crop and they needed to borrow from someone who was richer and they'd say, well, you know, what, what security have you got? All you've got is your land. And the last thing that God wanted was that the rich accumulated lots and lots of more land and possessions to themselves so that the poor couldn't live. So every Jubilee year, the land had to return to its original owner. So let's say I got poor. You said, oh, Mike, I'll help you out, you know, sign your land over to me and, and, and I'll give you some money to help you get through this rough season. But every 50th year, that land would revert to me. In other words, in our language, all you could buy was the leasehold, mm. never the freehold. Mm. And every 50th year, the land would have to go back. Now, <laughs> imagine if we were to say today that every 50th years, wealth was to be redistributed. And I'm not being political for one party or another in saying that, mm -hmm. but this is an expression of God's heart that the poor should not be left poor and the rich should not be allowed to trample on them. And those are themes that come out, not just in Leviticus, but in many books of the Bible, a tremendous compassion for the poor and none stood out more so than this that meant that your family land would come back to you. So while Leviticus can be a bit of hard work, if I'm honest, in reading through the whole books, every so often you get incredible gems like this that make you think, wow, what a God we have. Jesus, of course, would have known the book of Leviticus and quotes from it, does he not? Famously, in the love thy neighbour reference. Yes, Jesus clearly knew his Old Testament very well from being a young boy in the synagogue and at home. He would have been schooled in the scriptures and he does quote from, you've given me just one example there, but he will quote many times from these Old Testament books, which is why it's so important to read them ourselves and also to know where the context of those sayings comes from. But you're absolutely right. That call there to love your neighbour as you love yourself was not something that Jesus came up with. It's here, right in the laws of the Old Testament. So it's made up of 27 chapters. It might take you just over two hours to read it from beginning to end, though that would be tough going, as we said. Uh, what would be your reason for reading Leviticus mainly? It's not an easy book. And, you know, sometimes uh, some of these more difficult books, just reading a chapter or two at a time interspersed with something else that you're reading can just be a really helpful way to do it. But is it worth reading? Yes, it is. Because I think it speaks to me of an, a number of things. One is, you know, we can forget very easily that God is holy, that God is different. God is distinct. He's set apart. That's all different meanings of the word holy. God can sometimes become our best mate, and he is our best mate, but he is also the holy God who brought everything into being. And Leviticus reminds us that he is a holy God, 
and that he calls for a holy people, a people who will live differently to the world around them, whether that's how they look after their land or there are all sorts of things in Leviticus about how they look after animals or there are, there are rules uh, and regulations about sexual relationships. makes very clear that the only sexual relationships God sees is that between one man and one woman for life. That's a challenge in their culture. It certainly is a challenge in ours. It's got all sorts of things that say, if you truly know and love, the holy God, then your life will be lived out differently. And it won't just be about rituals and rules and regulations. It will be in the compassionate lifestyle that you live out towards others. You truly will love your neighbour as you love yourself. Because you do hear people say, you know, God's standard is too high for me. I'm, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. But Leviticus isn't really addressing that. No. And you know what? The answer I always give to people when they say that is, you're absolutely right. You're not good enough to be a Christian. And you know what? Nor am I. But actually what Leviticus says is to his people at the time, you can't be holy, but you know what? I'm going to give you some means to enable you to be holy. So if you do your sacrifices like this and you live your life like that, that will not ensure you are saved, it will show that you are saved. It will help you to live out a holy lifestyle. Today, no, we can't live a holy lifestyle, but what Jesus has done is promised to send us his Holy Spirit. And when we come to put our trust in Jesus, he sends his spirit to live within us so that from the inside, we have got both that desire and that impetus to live in a way that pleases God. So Leviticus reminds us God is holy. And you know what? You can't do it. But do you know what else? I'll help you to do it. And you can do it like this. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.